And as we turn uh, to John for the last time, for a little while anyway, um, I just want to remind us where we've been because we're picking up in the middle of a discussion. So at the beginning of John 6, Jesus fed the, the crowd, you know, the 5,000, well, 5,000 plus uh, crowd that was there. And then after the crowd chases him down to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they get into a whole conversation about, about the bread of life, and Jesus being the bread that came down from heaven. And so, at the, Jesus keeps saying they've got to feed on Him the bread from heaven, and He ends our reading from last week in verse 51 by saying, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we pick up in verse 52 with the crowd responding to that. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we say over and over again, God has given us His Word so we can know Him and we can love Him so that we would know that we are loved by Him. So let's pray that He would open it for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we don't live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We thank you that we have the final word in Jesus. 
and that he is the bread from heaven. So we pray that we would be able to feed on that this morning in your word. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, I know you've all been waiting for my take on the Will Smith slap. I have no take on it. I don't particularly care about it. Uh, I do find interesting how many weird, wild takes everybody came up with. Uh, I mean, many of them were understandable, you know. This is another example of somebody who can't take a joke, or this is another tasteless joke at someone else's expense, or, you know, this is toxic masculinity at work, right? Somebody, somebody doesn't know how to stand up for their family without acting out violence, whatever the takes may be, and they all may all be wrong, and or they may all be right, or I don't know, some of them, some are, some are, I have no idea. What's fascinating about all of these kinds of instances is how quickly people clutch their pearls about it. How quickly we are to be offended by something that happens, something someone says, because that is a symptom of our age, is, is to be offended quickly. Now, sometimes people are right to be offended. Sometimes they're not. Uh, we love to be offended by those that we see ourselves as different from and love to make excuses for those that we identify with. We're, you know, the thing about being offended is, on the one hand, it's, the, it's a thing you can do very quickly to kind of rally support around you. But also, because it's a shortcut to rallying support, it also is a quick way to get dismissed, to get written off. But make no mistake about what Jesus is doing here. And I think in terms of the drama of what's going on, it's so clear that Jesus intentionally offends the crowd. He intentionally says things in a provocative way that he knows will get them clutching their pearls. If they had them, most of them probably poor, didn't have pearls. He, he's not afraid of that, and yet it's also not his goal. So, I think the best way to think through this passage this morning is to think through the offense that Jesus makes, the message itself that offended, and the faith that some have despite the offense. Okay, so we'll begin with the offense. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus was talking about the bread from heaven that they need to feed on, and at some point, you know, probably most of the crowd is thinking, okay, you know, it's a metaphor. And Jesus ends where we ended last week by saying, you know, but that's, this is my flesh. And that's, of course, when people start getting confused as our passage picks up in verse 52. What is he talking about? How could we eat his flesh? I mean, Jesus, that's a little gruesome, isn't it? And of course, Jesus doubles down. <laughs> so he says, okay, you don't like that. Well, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of this. I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, you can see what he's doing, right? He's intentionally kind of diving further into this idea. And I mean, no wonder, it's kind of off-putting. 
Sounds like Jesus talking about cannibalism. I mean, what, what is he doing? It's off-putting. It's not, in fact, it's not just this crowd. The early church routinely, there were lots of rumors about it, doing weird things. I mean, they worshiped together as men and women, which in the ancient world rarely ever happened that there were events that were, you know, co-ed like that. And so there were all kinds of lascivious rumors about what was going on with these Christians. Uh, there was also this rumor that they were eating somebody's flesh and blood, which wasn't too far off the mark in one sense, <laughs> uh, but of course offended many of them. I mean, we, this goes so far back, in fact, that the very first account that we have from a Roman authority, like firsthand account that we have, uh, was a letter to the emperor Trajan in the year 112. So, that's only about 80 years or so after Jesus dies. Uh, and it was from this guy named Pliny the Younger, who was a governor in modern-day Turkey. And he has come across this group of Christians. And it, it seems like he's heard a little bit about them, but it's still not a large movement. And so, this is sort of his first run-in with them. And while he doesn't necessarily repeat that rumor, he does go out of his way to say that he investigated how they eat, and they eat like normal people, which is, you know, suggests that already that idea uh, was floating around. This is strange. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just the kind of faceless crowd that's upset. It gets into the group of disciples, meaning the broader group of followers of Jesus, right? And, it's, and we're told many of those disciples turn back, verse 66, so that the crowd is starting to thin out. And Jesus goes out of his way at the very end of this passage in verses 70 and 71 to point out that Judas is there. Now, we're not told what Judas thought about this, but we do know that at some point, Judas becomes disenchanted with Jesus. And so, even though he stays as one of the twelve, you do kind of wonder, is this one of these things that just kind of stuck in the back of his head, bothered him a little bit, that Jesus was teaching something so strange? I don't know. We, don't, we can't speculate, but so far with, with Judas on that. But it is true that the deepest problem here is the offense that Jesus poses. Now, look, at one level, people are confused. And that's fair. They misunderstand what Jesus is getting at. We're going to unpack what Jesus means in a minute. But... <laughs> uh, but they misunderstand. They don't really know. And actually, Jesus is okay with that. This is one of the occasions, and I think there are other places as well, where Jesus intentionally refuses to connect all the dots. Where Jesus intentionally leaves sort of a key puzzle piece hidden away. <laughs> and so people are trying to sort of figure out what he means. And the reason that he does that, I think, and I think it's certainly clear in this passage, is because he wants the last dot, the one that kind of brings the whole picture together, to be his actual death. When his body and blood are actually given up for us. 
He wants his death and his resurrection to be the final puzzle piece that brings the whole thing together. Jesus does not want them to know everything that's about to happen before it does. Uh, no doubt that leads to uh, some in <laughs> frustrating conversations. Uh, and yet, what we see Jesus doing is starting to lay out the framework, right, so that when He does give up His life, everything starts to fit. They can now understand what exactly He meant. And yet, and yet, there's still an offense here. There are still people who are saying, I don't want what you're offering. Granted, there may be confusion in the midst of it, but they don't want to give Jesus the time. They don't want to work it through. They don't want to understand what He means because it offends their sensibilities. And, you know, for 2,000 years, some things never change, right? That Jesus offends our sensibilities. I think there are, of course, many outside the church, maybe that's, maybe some of you are here this morning who are, who wouldn't say you belong, uh, who are offended by certain aspects of what God has taught, what Jesus has done. I think there are a lot of people that are in the church that perhaps not a whole lot like, unlike Judas, are a little bit offended, believe but come on now. Does it really have to be this way? Does it really have to be that way? And we struggle with those questions. And so my, I guess the, the issue then is whether we're really looking for explanations or whether we're looking to have our own sensibilities confirmed. Now, don't get me wrong. The church should invite questions. And often the church does not invite questions very well. We are unwilling to engage in sometimes in meaningful, lengthy conversation. We are sometimes dismissive. Sometimes we seem annoyed at the questions people ask. I mean, I'm, I'm not giving the church a pass on this. <laughs> uh, the, the, you know, of course the church has no answers for people when we don't actually want them to ask questions. And we should be a church, you know, individually and as a whole, that is an active listener, that is engaged with the questions that people are asking. But it's also just as important that we ask questions about what it is that offends us. Again, whether you're inside the church or out, about the things that we don't really like. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, famously kind of summarized modern, our modern attitudes this way. He says, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches a judge, right? Assuming you needed to justify yourself. For the modern man, the roles were reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. That is, God is the one on trial. 
the modern man is quite convinced that he is a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. You see, this is what, when we are offended, this is what we're holding on to, right, is that I have the right to demand that God answer. The problem with that is not that your concerns may or may not be valid. They may well be valid. The question is whether we really understand and know enough to possibly make any sense of God's goodness on our own. I mean, think about this. Um, as we've increasingly become more secularized in the West, we also have increasingly significant mental health issues. So we may be unhappy with the way that we think God is handling things, if indeed He is there. But how are we doing producing our own happiness? Like, in other words, we might say, God, you're not doing enough to to make this work, well, do we know what makes us happy? I'm not really so sure we do. We are in a time and an era in which anxiety and depression are out of control. And I know that there's a lot of contributing factors to that, and they're not just these spiritual questions, okay? I know that for some, for some, it is biochemical. For some, it is about dealing with your past and the burdens of some of those things. And yet, and yet, there's always this question still about, well, what is my life about? And we always still have to narrate to ourselves, what is most important to me? What am I pursuing? And the further we have gotten away from thinking that, well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him, the deeper problems we seem to have with anxiety and depression. Do we actually know what makes a life worth living? I mean, it's, you know, the meaning of life. It's a simple question, right? And it's not. <laughs> and this is the deep, profound problem, is it's not a simple question. And one of the, in other words, one of the things that when we feel offended, we need to stop and ask is, why? Is the, start, is the question, to some degree, our own sensibilities? Again, they may not all be wrong, but to ask this question, do I really know what I'm looking for? And can I actually make any sense of this myself? You see, in some ways, I mean, we're, try, we're holding God accountable for all that is wrong, and yet it's not clear we have any idea how to make it right. I mean, Jesus is intentionally offensive, so let's probably need to figure out what it is he's saying here, right? He's talking about his body and his blood. 
And again, that sort of cannibalistic language uh, is meant to be provocative. It is meant to get our attention, to focus it clearly on His body and His blood. And not to avoid those things. (laughs) And he tells us that they are true food and true drink uh, in verse 55. And I think this is helpful to recognize then that even here, though, Jesus is still clearly implying that there's some distinction, right, between what regular food is doing and what he's talking about. I mean, he is giving hints that there is some distinction here, right? This isn't just about food and the way we normally think about it. This isn't just about being satisfied with a full belly like he told the crowd in last week's passage. This is about being satisfied in a different, more complete way. So, you know, if you're willing to give Jesus a hearing, if we can maybe keep our offense at bay a little bit. It's clear that he's talking about something much more profound than that. And of course, when he does turn to the group of broader disciples, he does start to explain this a little more in 61 to 64, uh, yeah, where he starts talking about the Spirit, right? So, what he's saying is that this is a thing that you get, this life that you get, that when you're feeding on the bread of heaven, is given by the Spirit. So, again, if we're willing to check our offense a little bit and give him a hearing, he is making it plain that he's not talking about, you know, some morbid act. He is talking about being fed by his body and blood, not in some physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Now, uh, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper in a minute, but that's not really the bigger point here, right? It's not the, this isn't an establishment of the Lord's Supper moment. Rather, the Lord's Supper participates in the bigger picture that we are fed by the Spirit. Our souls are fed by the Spirit through what Jesus did with His body and blood. And Jesus wants us to think about His body and blood. His body and blood, the reality of His life given in our place. It's uncomfortable to think about. We're not supposed to be able to escape and get around it and just start to sort of generally think about His death. We're supposed to think that His body suffered and died and His blood was shed for us. Uh, Calvin puts it this way. He says, although righteousness flows from God alone, we shall not have the full manifestation of it anywhere else than in Christ's flesh. Right? In other words, although God is righteous, we never really see it fully except in what Jesus does in His body. For in His flesh, He was, a, he was accomplished, His flesh was accomplished, <laughs> uh, man's redemption. In it, a sacrifice was offered to atone for sins, and an obedience yielded to God to reconcile Him to us. It was also filled with the sanctification of the Spirit. Finally, having overcome death, it was received into the heavenly glory. You see, there's no way around the actual body of Jesus given for us. And yet, that is a gruesome thing, and it is hard to deal with. 
we like to spiritualize in the sense that we like to think of Jesus' body as an abstraction. Yes, long ago, some guy died for us. And yet, one of the peculiar features of the New Testament is that it goes back to the method of his death often. It's not just that someone died in some sense. It is that he was crucified, that his body was hung on a tree. And the horrors of the crucifixion, I'm not going to go into all the detail, but I mean, they are legendary. It was, it, it was ubiquitous across the Roman Empire. It was part of how they maintained their power is the fear of crucifixion. It was all over the place, and yet in polite society, never discussed. And even in official documents, often simply called the extreme torture or the extreme punishment. To avoid it because it was grotesque to see, right? It was, it was a prolonged pain-inducing experience. And not only was it that that person experienced it, but they were naked and suffering and on display. It is uncomfortable to talk about Jesus' actual body and actual blood given for us because when we, when we see the horror of it, we can't help but have to reflect on at, le- on at least two things. There's a, a hymn called Beneath the Cross of Jesus that puts this well. Right? It says, uh, when I behold the cross, two wonders I confess, the wonders of His glorious love and my unworthiness. His love and my unworthiness. Because the cross exposes the truth about us. Jesus' body hanging on the cross tells us something about ourselves that is deeply troubling. We like, even if we profess that we are sinners, even if we're willing to say, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved by grace, we don't like thinking about the extent to which we actually are sinners. I mean, have you ever been to a place that is marked by violence? Or a memorial, perhaps? I mean, these are sobering experiences. Uh, years ago, when I was in the Navy, we, we were in Poland, and I, I went on a tour through one of the concentration camps from World War II. And while the place is, of course, clean, while the smells are all gone, there is a kind of silence in a place like that because it is such a profound reminder of the horrors that we are capable of. We don't like thinking about it, but the body and blood of Jesus is the reminder of the full extent of what we are capable of. The full extent of what we deserve. Jesus is being provocative because he doesn't want us to be able to turn away from that reality. And yet, and yet, it is also the unrelenting love of God at work. Because the final word is not merely that you are undeserving. 
is that despite what we have done, God has loved us so much that he gave his only son. To be loved like that, to be be exposed like that for what we are, and yet to still be loved in such an unrelenting way, that in and of itself is uncomfortable because you can't run from it. You can't hide from it. God knows everything about me, all the worst of it, and He still did this. The extent that God was willing to go to give His only Son is almost too much to take sometimes. It's almost too much to take to think on His body given up because He loved us so much. As one theologian says, with the dead body of Jesus, God wedged open the door between Himself and the world. With the body of His Son. See, on the one hand, I'm, we're, I'm trying to explain what Jesus means and that it's not, on the one hand, as gruesome as we might think it is. But on the other hand, it is gruesome in a totally different way. <laughs> because when the last puzzle piece comes together, when He is hanging on that cross, we see that this was not about some gross thing that He wants us to do. It is about the gruesomeness of what He would endure for our sake out of His love for us. He doesn't want us to be able to turn away. I mean, that is why in the supper, ironically, we're not, this is one of the Sundays we're not actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. Blame that on a poor planning. can I say? But that's the point of the supper. This is why we say, and you know, later on Jesus would introduce this meal, right, and say, this is my body and my blood. Because that's what we are called back to over and over and over again, is the body and blood of Jesus. To be reminded of our unworthiness, but also of His glorious love. And those are just uncomfortable to think about. That's why we need the supper often. That's why we need to go back to it is because it teaches us that over and over and over again. And look, it is the work of His Spirit through it. I'm not going to get into all the different camps of what the supper means and all the ink that's been spilled for 2,000 years. People trying to figure out the connection, but I think Jesus is pretty clear here, right? By His Spirit, He applies His body and blood to us. So whether that's in His Word or whether that's in the sacrament itself, that's how He works, is by His Spirit. And there is a profound mystery here because it is not the work of our flesh, it is the work of His flesh that has been given on our behalf. It is the life-giving water that is not something we draw, but that is the pouring out of the Spirit into our lives. The message is offensive. You know, not because we are supposed to do some gruesome thing. It is offensive because when Jesus gave His body and blood for us, 
it calls all of our pretenses into question. It calls all of the goodness we think we possess. It calls it all into question. And more than that, it shows us the depth, the profound love of God for us that we cannot shake, that we cannot lose. He doesn't forget those who are His own. He already just said that last week. He will not forget it. Having given His life, having given His body and His blood for us, He will not forget. So what about the faith, the the 12 and some of the other disciples more broadly have? This is a fascinating turn of events, right? Some of the disciples are leaving, and Jesus turns in verse 67 and says, do you want to go also to the 12? And Peter's answer, let's give Peter credit, okay? Let's give Peter credit, because usually when Peter is singled out, he puts his foot in his mouth. Routinely. Almost always. And man, Peter gets it right. Peter gets it right this time, right? Because his answer is beautiful. What he says is, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, that idea of the Holy One of God is fascinating because it's not a very common expression in Scripture. It does come up here and there in the Old Testament, uh, but there's not really a particularly systematic way in which it arises. It almost always speaks of God, not so much the Messiah. Uh, And yet, there are two passages where that ironically have, or maybe not accidentally, (laughs) have been mentioned in chapter 6 already. In Psalm 78, the people quoted it to Jesus uh, in verse 31 about, you know, how God had provided manna for them. And Psalm 78 is rehearsing what went on in the wilderness. But you know where Psalm 78 ends up going? It ends up, it ends up talking about how the people of God, despite all that He gave, <laughs> turned their back on Him. In fact, in Psalm 78, verse 41, he says, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. And then Jesus had quoted from another passage, Isaiah 54. Uh, this is back in verse 45. He had quoted from that about how God would, or how everyone would be taught by God. But in Isaiah 54, there is the line that the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. So, in Psalm 78, if you're not tracking here, Psalm 78, the mention of the Holy One is about the contrast between God's holiness and the faithlessness of His people. And of course, in Psalm 54, it is about how God will redeem them. So, I don't know what all Peter had in mind here. (laughs) But isn't it fascinating, right, that whether on purpose or by accident, Peter stumbles in to exactly the same passages that have already been mentioned. 
perhaps sort of unwittingly, right? He, already, he picks up those expressions knowing those passages. But whatever the case is, they are passages that point to God's faithfulness, whether in contrast to our faithlessness or just simply highlighting that He is the one who will redeem. Whatever the case is, this is what Peter is professing. This is who Jesus is. He is the Holy One. He is the Redeemer. He is the one who is faithful. And so Peter has highlighted then two aspects of what it means to have faith. I mean, one of them is to, is to recognize that every other answer is lame. Right? Where else are we going to go? <laughs> I mean, if you've been taught by Jesus, probably going back to some other rabbi would be a little bit of a disappointment. Where else are they going to go? And think about it, that's an important question when we're trying to figure out our own doubts, right, and our own offense at God, right, is where else are we going to go? I mean, we could go to other religions, and I, I want to be careful here. I think Christians are often very quick to dismiss that there's something compelling in other religions. And yet, so many people believe them. But here's the difference. This is the difference between the gospel and every other religious system, is every other religious system is about what you do. And part of the reason people were offended by Jesus is they thought he was saying, you've got to do this thing that is grotesque. And what Jesus is saying ultimately is, I'm going to do this for you. I'm giving my body and blood for you. And that every other religion ultimately boils down to what you do. And one of the things that people routinely get confused about in the church, even, is that it's about what we do and what Jesus is saying, the puzzle piece that he's left out, that he's waiting for his death and resurrection to complete, is that he is the one who does what is needed for our sake. Maybe you want to go the non-religious route, right? Where else can I go? Okay, well, maybe religion's the problem altogether. Well, great. But that's what we were already kind of talking about, wasn't it? I mean, how well are we faring as a secular society? We're, like we said, we're more unhappy than we've ever been. <laughs> We're more anxious and depressed. The just-so stories about how great we would be and will be without God have led to politics becoming a kind of functional Savior. Where will we go? And it's important to, kind of, to be honest with ourselves. If we're, if we're offended by Jesus, what else is out there? But it's more than that. It is also recognizing who He is. Not being confused by our own sen you know, sensibilities, sentiments, in listening to what he's saying, 
In that regard, we need a little bit of uh, epistemological humility, right? A little humility about what we know and what we don't know. And that is what you hear Peter saying, and he's saying, you know, Peter, I, th- I think, is reflecting on the two miracles at the beginning of this chapter, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water and seeing that Jesus is doing and saying things that only God's supposed to be able to do, right? So Peter's like, I, you know, I, obviously he doesn't have a full explanation. Yeah, Peter's going to make that crystal clear as this goes along. Peter does not understand everything that's going on, and yet he knows enough to know something unbelievable is happening here. He doesn't have all the answers, and yet, and yet, what Jesus is doing, nothing else stacks up to this. And what Peter will learn, I mean, you know, if you think about the life of Peter for a moment, what Peter learns, in in some ways the hard way, is not to have confidence in himself. I mean, he, could, he wouldn't be able to show up at any church if he was trying to have confidence in himself because all the stories about Jesus, or many of them, feature him as the buffoon. And yet he becomes the leader of the church, right? This is not a man who's putting any confidence in who he is. And I, I'm not saying he's arrived at this, mo- at this moment in the in the in history that Peter understands all of that, but what he grows into is is an understanding when the puzzle pieces come together. What Peter learns, what all the disciples learn, what it is the church has to continue to learn over and over and over again is that our hope is in Jesus' blood and body given for us, not in what we've done. There's nowhere else to go. Because if we want to perform a certain, if we want to be righteous enough, if we want to be good enough, if we want to live a good life and try to stack up, it always fails. If we want to try to convince ourselves that we can do it on our own, it continually disappoints. And this is why faith needs to feed on the body and blood of Jesus. Why coming back to the cross is not an incidental thing that we do over and over and over again. It's not that this was just, you know, this was just a big moment. You know, we want to keep, keep, keep coming back to this. We talk about Good Friday and we talk about Easter we think about those not only on Good Friday and Easter. We come back to them over and over again. Jesus, Paul describes the message of Christianity as Christ and Him crucified. We come back to this thing over and over and over again because that's what it looks like to feed on faith. And whenever we're falling into the trap of being like, yeah, 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 I know about that stuff, but what am I supposed to learn more? What am I supposed to do more? We are heading in the wrong direction because maturity in faith does not mean moving on from the work of Jesus. 
It means digging up, finding richer and richer things in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is about not having learned those facts and getting on to other more important things for us now. It is about finding that in the body and blood of Jesus are truths about God, are a guiding motivation for our lives that is inexhaustible. And whenever we try to find motivation for our lives that loses touch with His body and blood, it becomes a futile effort, a destructive and a self-destructive effort. And whenever we try to get wise and leave it behind, it becomes a proud or really foolish endeavor. See, everything that we need is in the body and blood of Jesus. And that is why, you know, even when we talk about all of Scripture, right, we recognize that all of Scripture, however far afield we get of the Gospels, leads us back to the Gospels. And the Gospels invite us to think about how everything around them, before them, opens up the story of Jesus. Because we're always coming back to the cross, to the body and blood of Jesus So let me ask you this this morning. Where are you going to go? Because it is Jesus who has the words of eternal life. And the final word that Jesus spoke over your life is in his body and in his blood shed for you because this is spiritual food and spiritual drink. And it is your only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus gave his life for us. We thank you for the hmm, uncomfortable reality of his life given on the cross. Yet, Lord, where else can we go? We know that Jesus, we know that your Son has the words of life. We know that in him we are fed, body and soul through what He has given for us. Yet, Lord, You know, You know better than we do how quickly we forget. How quickly we like to think that we can move on from it to other things. And yet it is a treasure that has no bottom. It is the story that has infinite riches in it. It is like a diamond that we can continue to turn and see endless facets and new beauties every day. Teach us to feed on the body and blood of Jesus and to forsake every other food. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.